Today's two C.S. Lewis daily excerpts, one of them comes from a 12 September 1960 letter to Mrs. Ray Garrett on the real program of the spiritual life living in the present moment. And this is what he wrote. The whole lesson of my life has been that no methods of stimulation are of any lasting use. They are indeed like drugs. A stronger dose is needed each time and soon no possible dose is effective. We must not bother about thrills at all. Do the present duty, bear the present pain, enjoy the present pleasure, and leave emotions and experiences to look after themselves. That's the program, isn't it? This next segment comes from a piece I haven't read yet myself, called A Slip of the Tongue, which is another one of the sermons he was asked to preach at one point in time. When a layman has to preach a sermon, I think he is most likely to be useful, or even interesting, if he starts exactly from where he is himself, not so much presuming to instruct as the comparing notes. Not long ago, when I was using the Collect for the fourth Sunday after Trinity, by which he means uh, this certain prayer, um, he means uh, a particular liturgy, um, which is, O God, the protector of all that trust in thee, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy. Increase and multiply upon us thy mercy, that though being our, that through being our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal, that we may finally lose not the things eternal. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake, our Lord. Amen. That's the, that's the prayer he's talking about. So he says, not long ago, when I was using the Collect for the fourth Sunday after Trinity in my private prayers, I found that I had made a slip of the tongue. I had meant to pray that I might so pass through things temporal that I finally lost not the things eternal. I found I had prayed so to pass through things eternal that I finally lost not the things temporal. Of course, I don't think that a slip of the tongue is a sin. I'm not sure I'm even a strict enough Freudian to believe that all such slips without exception, are deeply significant. But I think some of them are significant, and I thought this was one of that sort. I thought what I had inadvertently said very nearly expressed something I had really wished. Very nearly. Not, of course, precisely. I had never been quite so stupid as to think that the eternal could strictly be passed through. What I had wanted to pass through without prejudice to my things temporal was those hours or moments in which I attended to the eternal, in which I exposed myself to it. I mean this sort of thing. I say my prayers, I read a book of devotion, I prepare for or receive the sacrament. But while I do these things, there is, so to speak, a voice inside me that urges caution. It tells me to be careful, to keep my head, not to go too far, not to burn my boats. I come into the presence of God with a great fear lest anything should happen to me within that presence, which will prove too toler intolerably inconvenient when I have come out again into my quote-unquote ordinary life. I don't want to be carried away into any resolution which I shall afterwards regret, for I know I shall be feeling quite different after breakfast. I don't want anything to happen to me at the altar which will run up too big a bill to pay then. It would be very disagreeable, for instance, to take the duty of charity while I am at the altar, so seriously, that after breakfast I had to tear up the really stunning reply I had written to an impudent correspondent yesterday and meant to post today. <laughs> he 
It would be very tiresome to commit myself to a program of temperance, which would cut off my after-breakfast cigarette, or, at best, make it cruelly alternative to a cigarette later in the morning. Even repentance of past acts will have to be paid for, by repenting one acknowledges them as sins, therefore not to be repeated. Better leave that issue undecided. The root principle of all these precautions is the same, to guard the things temporal, and I find some evidence that this temptation is not peculiar to me. A good author, whose name I have forgotten, asked somewhere, Have we never risen from our knees in haste, for fear God's will should become too unmistakable if we prayed longer? The following story was told as true. An Irish woman who had just been at confession met on the steps of the chapel the other woman who was her greatest enemy in the village. The other woman let fly a torrent of abuse. "'Isn't it a shame for ye?' replied Biddy. "'To be talking to me like that, ye coward, "'and me in a state of grace the way I can't answer ye. "'But you wait. I won't be in a state of grace long.'" <laughs> there is an excellent tragicomic example in Trollope's last chronicle. The archdeacon was angry with his eldest son. He at once made a number of legal arrangements to the son's disadvantage. They could all easily have been made a few days later. But Trollope explains why the archdeacon would not wait. To reach the next day, he had to pass through his evening prayers, and he knew that he might not be able to carry out his hostile plans safely through the clause, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. So he got in first. He decided to present God with a fait accompli. This is an extreme case of the precautions I am talking about. The man will not venture within reach of the eternal until he has made the things temporal safe in advance. This is my endlessly recurrent temptation to go down to that sea. I think St. John of the Cross called God a sea. And neither dive nor swim nor float, but only dabble and splash, careful not to get out of my depth and holding on to the lifeline which connects me with my things temporal. It is different from the temptations that met us at the beginning of the Christian life. Then we fought, at least I fought, against admitting the claims of the eternal at all. And when we had fought and been beaten and surrendered, we supposed that all would be fairly plain sailing. This temptation comes later. It is addressed to those who have already admitted the claim in principle or are even making some sort of effort to meet it. Our temptation is to look eagerly for the minimum that will be accepted. We are, in fact, very like honest but reluctant taxpayers. We approve of an income tax in principle. We make our returns, truthfully. But we dread a rise in the tax. We are very careful to pay no more than is necessary. And we hope, we very ardently hope, that after we have paid it, there will still be enough to live on. And notice that those cautions which the tempter whispers in our ears are all plausible. Indeed, I don't think he often tries to deceive us, after early youth, with a direct lie. The plausibility is this. It is really possible to be carried away by religious emotion, enthusiasm, as our ancestors called it, into resolutions and attitudes which we shall not, which we shall not sinfully but rationally, not when we are more worldly but when we are wiser, have cause to regret. We can become scrupulous or fanatical. We can, in what zeal, what seems zeal, but is really presumption, embrace tasks never intended for us. Let me re read this because it was confusing the way that I read it. 
Notice that those cautions in which the tempter whispers in our ears are all plausible. Indeed, I don't think he often tries to deceive us after early youth with a direct lie. The plausibility is this. It is really possible to be carried away by religious emotion, enthusiasm, as our ancestors called it, into resolutions and attitudes which we shall, not sinfully but rationally, not when we are more worldly but when we are wiser, have cause to regret. We can become scrupulous or fanatical. We can, in what seems zeal but is really presumption, embrace tasks never intended for us. That is the truth in the temptation. The lie consists in the suggestion that our best protection is a prudent regard for the safety of our pocket, our habitual indulgences, and our ambitions. But that is quite false. Our real protection is to be sought elsewhere, in common Christian usage, in moral theology, in steady rational thinking, in the advice of good friends and good books, and, if need be, in a skilled spiritual director. Swimming lessons are better than a lifeline to the shore. What a wonderful line. Swimming lessons are better than a lifeline to the shore. For, of course, that lifeline is really a death line. There is no parallel to paying taxes and living on the remainder, for it is not so much of our time and so much of our attention that God demands. It is not even all our time and all our attention. It is ourselves. For each of us, the Baptist's words are true. He must increase and I decrease. He will be infinitely merciful to our repeated failures. I know no promise that he will accept a deliberate compromise. For he has, in the last resort, nothing to give us but himself, and he can give that only in so far as our self-affirming will retires and makes room for him in our souls. Let us make up our minds to it. There will be nothing of our own left over to live on, no ordinary life. I do not mean that each of us will necessarily be called to be a martyr, or even an ascetic. That's as may be. For some, nobody knows which, the Christian life will include much leisure, many occupations we naturally like. But these will be received from God's hands. In a perfect Christian, they will be as much a part of his religion, his service, as his hardest duties and his feasts would be as Christian as his fasts. What cannot be admitted, what must exist only as an undefeated but daily resisted enemy, is the idea of something that is our own, some area in which we are to be out of school, on which God has no claim. For he claims all, because he is love and must bless. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with him. That is, I take it, the meaning of all those sayings that alarm me most. Thomas More said, If ye make indentures with God, how much ye will serve him, ye shall find you have signed both of them yourself. Oh, that's interesting. Law, in his terrible, cool voice, said, Many will be rejected at the last day, not because they have taken time and pains about their salvation, but because they have not taken time and pains enough. And later, in his richer behemite, behenit, beb, wow, this is a tough word, his richer bemenite period, B-E-H-M-E-N-I-T-E, if you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make in the end no difference what you have chosen instead. Those are hard words to take. Will it really make no difference whether it was women or patriotism, cocaine or art, whiskey or a seat in the cabinet, money or science? Well, surely no difference that matters. 
We shall have missed the end for which we are formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. Does it matter to a man dying in the desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? It is a remarkable fact that on this subject heaven and hell speak with one voice. The tempter tells me, take care, think how much this good resolve, the acceptance of this grace, is going to cost. But our Lord equally tells us to count the cost. Even in human affairs, great importance is attached to the agreement of those whose testimony hardly ever agrees. Here more. Between them, it would seem to be pretty clear that paddling is of little consequence. What matters, what heaven desires and hell fears, is precisely that further step out of depth, out of our own control. And yet, I'm not in despair. At this point, I become what some would call very evangelical, at any rate, very unpelagian. I do not think any efforts of my own will can end once and for all this craving for limited liabilities, this fatal reservation. Only God can. I have good faith and hope he will. Of course, I don't mean that I can, therefore, as they say, sit back. What God does for us, he does in us. The process of doing it will appear to me, and not falsely, to be the daily or hourly repeated exercises of my own will in renouncing this attitude, especially each morning, for it grows all over me like a new shell each night. Failures will be forgiven. It's acquiescence that is fatal. The permitted, regularized presence of an area in ourselves which we still claim for our own. We may never, this side of death, drive the invader out of our territory, but we must be in the resistance, not in the Vichy government. He's specifically there talking about uh, the French um, agreement with supporting Hitler. And this, so far as I can see, must be begun again every day. Our morning prayer shall be in that imitation, Da Hodi Perfect Incipere. Grant me to make an unflawed beginning today, for I have done nothing yet. That's today's Daily C.S. Lewis, as always brought to you by Prometheus Studies by Jen Finelli, which you can find online by googling Prometheus Studies, Finding God, and Palabalus, Tarantulas, and Barrio. Have a wonderful evening.